Ayer nació un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Hello and welcome to the Zapatista podcast, lessons and stories from Chiapas. This podcast is brought to you by the Galway Feminist Collective and Promedios Mexico. This podcast series gives a general introduction to the Zapatista movement of Mexico to those not so familiar with their struggle in the light of their first European tour this summer 2021. We want to give folks in Ireland and Europe an insight into the Zapatistas through interviews with some of those who have worked closely with movement. A quarter of a century on, after the Zapatista uprising of 1994, we want to retrace some of the steps that their struggle has taken on its long and steady road to autonomy, sharing their learnings and obstacles, but above all their determination and creativity to make other worlds a reality. Zapatistas are a Mexican revolutionary indigenous movement that govern many autonomous zones over an extensive region within Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico. Zapatistas don't like to be pigeonholed, but they are most certainly anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchal. Some say they are libertarian socialists, yet they have anarchists and communists, Catholics and atheists among them. They practice direct democracy and traditional indigenous ways of organizing. On January 1st, 1994, the day NAFTA came into effect, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement signed by the US, Mexico and Canada, Zapatista women and men led an uprising to halt the ever-increasing death grip of colonialism and its legacy, which has been centuries of poverty and inequality, racism and exploitation. Following the uprising and broken accords by the Mexican government, Zapatistas turned to creating their own autonomy and practicing self-determination. This summer 2021, a delegation of Zapatistas and representatives from various indigenous groups in Mexico are traveling in Europe as part of a world tour. Their European tour coincides with the 500 year anniversary of the fall of Tenochtitlan, present day Mexico City. From July to October, the delegation is meeting with activists throughout Europe. The meetings are meant to horizontally strengthen and multiply the resistances in each place. Once again, the Zapatistas will appeal to our creative consciousness, to see past the reality that Europe and the minority world lives, and to open our eyes to how the majority world survives. The first Zapatista representatives have already disembarked in Spain. Among them, a transgendered woman is helping unfold a massive campaign, urging Europe to wake up to a new dawn and to create other worlds together, beyond capitalism. Hello, I'm Nancy Serrano. Welcome to the Zapatista podcast, Stories and Lessons from Chiapas. Let's begin this episode on food autonomy with the story of the third shoulder, written by Subcomandante Marcos in his book, The Other Stories. The third shoulder. On the shoulder of the night, the moon appears, but only for a moment. The clouds parted, as if drawing a curtain. 
Then the nocturnal body revealed its trail of light, like the mark of a tooth. Leaves on a shoulder, when in the flight of desire, one does not know whether it is falling or rising. Thirty-five years ago, after laboriously climbing the first hill to enter the mountains of southeast Mexico, I sat down at a bend in the road. The time? I don't remember exactly. While I tried to ease my breathing and my heartbeat, I saw a man go by, up the hill, with a sack of corn on his back. The bundle looked heavy, and the man walked hunched over. My load had been taken from me halfway up the hill so as not to slow down our march. But it was my life that was weighing on me, not my backpack. Anyway, I don't know how long I was sitting there, but after a while the man passed by again. Now down the hill, and now without a load. But the man kept walking hunched over. About a year later, I met Don Antonio. One morning I went to his hut to pick up toast and pinole. Don Antonio offered to accompany me to the camp. So he divided the load into two sacks and put the head sling on his back. I put the sack in my backpack because I didn't know the proper way of carrying a head sling. We walked until we reached the edge of the pasture where the trees began. We stopped in front of a stream waiting for the sun to rise. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but Don Antonio explained to me that the indigenous people always walk hunched over, even if they don't carry anything, because they carry others on their shoulders. I asked, how was that? And old Antonio told me that the first gods, those who gave birth to the world, made women and men out of corn in such a way that they always walked collectively. And he told me that walking in a group means thinking about others. That is why the natives walked hunched over, said Don Antonio, because they carry their hearts and the hearts of all on their shoulders. I thought then that two shoulders were not enough for that weight. Time passed and we prepared to fight and our first defeat was against these indigenous people. They and we walked hunched over. But we because of the weight of pride. And they because they also carried us. Although we didn't even realize it. So we became them and they became us. We began to walk together, hunched over but all knowing that two shoulders were not enough for that weight. So we rose up in arms on the first day of January of the year 1994 to look for another shoulder that would help us walk. That is, to help us be. Autónomo.
In this episode, I speak with Rita Valencia about the Sabatistas Autonomous Agricultural Project. She describes how land is so much more than the physical territory, and not just for food production. Rita explains the basis of the 5,000-year-old Mayan food production system, the Milpa, and how Zapatista communities are recovering their ancestral knowledge and practices. We discuss the ins and outs of putting a cup of Zapatista coffee on your table, and she also speaks of present-day threats that communities in Chiapas are facing while still remaining crystal clear on their political position and opposing capitalism. Hi, Rita. Thanks for joining us to share your experiences um, with the Zapatista movement. I wanted to start by asking you um, a little bit about your first impressions of the Zapatista movement when you first encountered them. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me. It's difficult to say my first impressions because I was born and raised in Mexico City. So as such, I think my first impressions came through media. And it took me a few years to actually manage to get to, to Chiapas and encounter the Zapatista movement in blood and flesh, let's say. Could you give us a little bit of um, what your personal experiences has been in the Zapatista communities when you did get out to, um, to visit and work there? Um, and, and what kind of work did you engage with the communities? Well, I think that I'm just one one experience among like a group of experiences of like people from more or less my like age group that went from Mexico City or from other parts of Mexico but also from different parts of the world to Chiapas to because we were trying to find an example basically in a moment of like of political and social closure in a moment where we feel that like uh, all hope has basically vanished, uh, where we feel kind of like trapped in the same political system that is offering no solutions and just like despair for a lot of people. This group of people that are extremely well organized managed to convey an idea a very important idea in the 90s, and I think a very important idea today, which is basically that other worlds are possible, that other ways of living are possible. So I think I, I, I worked a bit in autonomous media or free media in Chiapas. I think that I would say that that was one of my first sort of like encounters with the communities. And then over time, because I'm also very interested in nature and food production. I got involved with um, a few collectives and ways to commercialize their produce, and I mean Zapatista collectives. And ultimately, I also worked in a project in which the main aim was to create edible forests in Zapatista communities. Well, so you have worked lots of different aspects with the communities, so you you got a, a bit of a feel for all the work they do do there and what the daily life can be like there. Well, so we're focusing today on the agricultural side. Could you tell us then what have you seen about the, uh, well, what the agricultural production and the access to land of the Zapatistas was before 94, so that then we can see what changes after the uprising? It is extremely important to understand the land tenure system in, in 
Chiapas to understand the reasons behind the uprising. And I think that that is very relevant to, um, in order to explain Zapatista like history, let's say. But I think it's also very important for us to reflect on this topic today as well. Because I feel that there is a tendency in media, and particularly like since the pandemic, to emphasize the importance of uh, the virtual world and technologies and all these things that are supposed to help us to continue like living <laughs> even through these very difficult times. But I am very critical of this because I think that uh, in a way what this discourse is doing is obscuring the importance of land and land tenure systems. Land has been and I think will always be crucial for humankind. Uh, we need we need to have access to to land for all sorts of different reasons and Our lives are not immaterial lives. Our lives are connected to very specific things, such as like food that will provide us like nourishment. That's that's the basic, basically. And I think that like many of the conflicts that we see around the world today are specifically related to land. Um, and we, we, we must not forget about that. One of the first things that like people say when they think about Mexico is basically like the Mexican Revolution, no? which started at the beginning of the of the past century, <laughs> 1910, and it's still famous because one of the main aims of that revolution was land redistribution. I think we need to understand that like that land redistribution didn't really reach Chiapas at all, I, I'll say. <laughs> a bit, finally reached Chiapas a bit in the 70s, and that was basically like, or as a result, of some collective organizing by some like peasant organizations, like the first organizations in, in the state. But overall, what we, what we could see is a continuous line of land dispossession in, in Chiapas that started uh, with colonial rule. The indigenous communities in Chiapas, but I think it was also mainly the case in other parts of the Mayan region as Guatemala, were dispossessed of their lands, of their ancestral territory, territories, and were forced to um, relocate and live in small places, particularly in areas where food production and life overall are very difficult. That is the case of like the highlands, For in Chiapas. For other reasons, I have had the opportunity to visit some of the municipalities in the highlands where all sorts of like government and NGO interventions have tried to increase food production. But in areas where, where basically like the layer of soil present is so thin <laughs> that it's extremely difficult to produce food And out of rocks, basically, uh, with no water or, or with very limited access to, to water. What happened to all the good land? Well, the good land is still to this day, and this is something very important, in vast amounts concentrated in a few families that are still 
um, holding up the, the political power within Chiapas, within the state. The uprising was basically a way of demanding access to land, to land that was actually like their ancestral territory and land that would provide a, an opportunity for a better life. Like it's 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 important to to keep that in mind as well in the Mesoamerican region, and I think that like the in the collective mind of of indigenous people and and peasants, the idea is not to have like huge amounts of land. It's just like enough land to make a living and to have a a, a dignified life. So that's basically. I think what the causes behind the, the the uprising, and after 1994 and through the uprising, they were the Zapatistas were able, as well as other groups, I must say, to get hold of some of their ancestral territory, and that's where basically like some of the communities are are living today. Yeah, so basically they yeah they they managed to gain what their most valuable asset is again to create life in a meaningful way and so they start shortly after 94 to create their autonomous zones and obviously were able to expand these a little bit at different moments in time as well as lose some territories at different moments in time as well and in terms of then now that they had a little bit of access through these recovered lands what managed to change in terms of their agricultural production? How did they work this recovered land? Or how did they start, perhaps? I think that, I mean, before moving into that like question, I would like to point out something that I think is very important and that we, we need to, by we, I mean we in the West, we need to start like remembering this. That is that like land is not only... A material construct, but it also has emotional and spiritual aspects attached to it, and as well as cultural and social. Um, and this is basically what I think the capitalist system is trying to to dismantle and to break. Kind of like saying land is the same, like in this idea of like sameness, not like. Like an apple is an apple, and, and that piece of land is exactly the same as the other piece of land. And that is not the case, because these are, and I think up to a certain extent, we are like, we're all our land based cultures. And that basically means that, like, what we eat, what forms our flesh and bone is completely related to, to that landscape to what grows in that landscape, to that a very particular set of like weather conditions, plants, animals, insects, and spirits. The Zapatistas don't really go into that much detail about like spirits, but I think it's important to, to remember the spiritual and emotional attachment uh, and source of identity that like land is. So, I mean, I just wanted to, to mention that. And then I'll move on to your question, which is based or which is related to production. Well, it's, it's important to, um, remember as well that, uh, Mesoamerican cultures are cultures of corn, 
But beyond corn, we should talk about milpa. La milpa, the milpa as a productive system is basically uh, formed by three crops and that would be uh, corn, beans and uh, pumpkin, also called squash, which are basically like three crops that not only like grow really well together, but they require each other because, for example, beans help to fix nitrogen to the soil, which is required by the corn to like grow and also the squash, which attracts pollinators. But this, this, this will be like the three main crops. But around that, I mean, there are like some studies that have managed to count more than 52 different species of plants, vegetables, well, they could, they could also be medicinal plants growing in, in a milpa. So, uh, and this, this is a system, a productive system that has been developed in like the Mesoamerican region over millennia, basically. And those three elements, plus the other 52, <laughs> which of course include chilies, are part are an integral part to this day of our diet. So that's when that's why when we say that like we are the people of corn and like corn is the basis of our flesh, it's metaphorical but it's also up to a certain extent very real because we that's why we eat like every day sometimes like three times a day. The zapatistas, many other indigenous and peasant groups have remained loyal to what we what we are and they have really never stopped growing uh, milpa we are pueblos milperos uh, and this is basically what power the capitalist system and in this case the state has been trying really hard to dismantle particularly in the past 50 years i'm gonna say and that, as we mentioned at the beginning, is related to the land tenure uh, system because people can have a um, milpa in a relatively like small piece of land, but the the ideas of um, the green revolution and of um, let's say technified production require bigger pieces of land, bigger plots of land, and a mechanical way of plowing, for example. But the real technology is like understanding the very delicate and sophisticated uh, sets of relationships that exist, not only above ground, but also below the ground. And that basically involves not only like different crops growing in different su successions, but also in some cases using fire in a very wise and controlled manner. So as Zapatistas, I think what they have managed to do in all these years is basically to go back to their roots in that sense, to continue being what we have been for the past, I'm going to say, 5,000 years, when a, when a community loses its control over their food production and their food, basically, their access to food, 
that's the end of their autonomy, of their capacity for, for freedom and for self-governance. Because basically, like, you are completely dependent on whoever is producing your food and whoever is importing it. I think that, like, the basis for, like, the Zapatista autonomy and really for any real autonomy is food production and access to, to not only, I mean, I think, I think we also need to understand not only, like, food, but nourishing food. Again, this is also something very important because food is a, a source not only of nourishment, but also of dignity. It sounds like it's the real heart of, well, many parts of communities everywhere, obviously. I think once we all think about food, we can think of so many good memories of families, of grannies, of moments of Yeah, there's a there's a lot of sharing aspect um, when we think of our food, but I think the land connection is probably something we tend to not think so much about in, especially coming from urban areas. But that really describes well how they they really have um, well recovered and gone back to what they really wanted in terms of their own ancestral knowledge and had the opportunity because at the end of the day without even be able to decide what to do with land that now is their own again they have much more control and autonomy just one quick question and then i want to ask you a little bit more about food autonomy in going back to their milpas and and growing more, their more traditional crops in their way have they also um within their territories tried to because i think they would have used much more agrochemicals when they their land wasn't theirs and has there been a push to try to I, i won't say organic because that's a more complex question but at least to minimize chemicals or how how has that been yeah i think so i mean i think that like going back to ancestral let's say let's, let's keep that word for now ways of of producing that basically means like reducing or avoiding altogether agrochemicals because to start with like those are expensive <laughs> like those are inputs that you need to buy and another key aspect that we need to understand uh, like about the zapatistas is that like they have managed to to a certain extent build their own economy but it's a it's a very little almost no cash economy But secondly, I think that like there is a wider awareness of this idea of producing uh, or growing foods like nature does. The goal or the aim is to to remain as natural as possible. And so, yeah, you mentioned um, food autonomy, which I'm sure some people use the terms in different parts, but maybe a more used term is food sovereignty. And again, before that was food security, there's always another term which I think, you know, helps us enhance how we focus on the topic. Would you explain a little bit about the difference of what you mean by food autonomy versus food sovereignty, let's say? Yeah, I mean, I want to say that, like, this is not like the kind of like terminology that I have seen them like use. However, I mean, I think that like in, in conceptual terms, they're main idea is autonomy and 
the difference that I see between like food autonomy and food sovereignty is basically that sovereignty is still related to the state. As a concept, I think, uh, and as a movement, it's something that like became popular and like expanded in the 90s where neoliberal reforms were being implemented in different parts of the world. And the idea was basically like to push back against those neoliberal policies and up to a certain extent reclaim control over the nation state and change public policy. I think that, I mean, and this is my, my personal point of view, I think that that is no longer possible. 30 years have passed since then, and we have seen a lot of like different social and political movements in different parts of the world trying to get control over the state and change things from there. And in reality, not much has changed. Perhaps the problem is not that we got the, we are not winning. The problem is that like that game is not for us to win. I think that it is much more important right now to reclaim, to reclaim control over our lives, over our territories and over our bodies, particularly in the case of like um, women and feminized bodies, uh, than to try to take control over a state. And I think this also goes for, for climate change. And I know that I'm, I don't want to get too much into this because it's extremely like messy and complicated. But I think that like if we wait, if we sit down and wait to see when things are going to change, when the, na- the different like nation states are going to sign meaningful agreements, take action on them. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And we don't have much time for, for that to be like brutally honest. So I think that like growing like unstoppable movements that are really rooted at local levels and where we reclaim all the different ways of autonomy that we have lost is much more achievable and important. So, well, some of the the people listening today may have heard or even had the opportunity to try um, Zapatista coffee, which is probably one of their best known products in various parts of the world. And I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the the ins and outs, the complexities of how the Zapatistas have managed to sell this product and others outside their communities. And it probably wouldn't be a traditional crop of theirs in the first place. So No, no. It's 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 basically like a, a cash crop that was introduced as far as I know, mainly by German landowners in both in Guatemala and in Chiapas. So yeah, and and that was basically I think introduced in the nineteenth century. And coffee again, it's 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 very important for for different historical reasons. But um, I will focus <laughs> on, on coffee, Zapatista coffee, reaching other parts of the world. There are all sorts of like barriers that the Mexican state, but also uh, European states, create to to stop this import. Because that is one of the main cash flows for for the communities. 
So the networks that managed to get this coffee across these these barriers, these have been developed basically like since since the nineties, and they really involve a lot of like effort and time and knowledge on how to to, to basically like to play the system so that. There are no that like so that the coffee cannot be like stopped uh, in the different in the different points. They have tried, and I have known of, of different cases where where like big shipments of of coffee have been stopped, uh, like in in whether in the in the Mexican barrier or in Europe. In a way, the work that goes behind this cup of coffee is also the result of of activism let's say because there isn't really much money involved this is not a business like you don't find this coffee in like i don't know your i don't know your high street like supermarkets this is something that you find in in local shops where a different set set of values are promoted so it's it's a very humble and um, even like almost like a token of these solidarity networks that have been created over decades of of people's lives and work and I think it's important to value this because uh, it's it's almost as a as an experiment of how things can be done differently. Yeah, I think it's important to differentiate on how even when the system has managed to up to, certain, to, up to a certain extent co-opt terms such as fair trade <laughs> or, or, I mean, there's a lot of like greenwashing and, 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 and stuff like that. It's important to, to remain very critical of how those terms are being used um the Zapatista coffee is beyond fair trade, I think. Yeah, that's what it, I was going to say. It's um, because at the end of the day, they're they're managing the whole thing themselves. It's not this external NGO that comes in and every NGO has their own set of criteria and et cetera, et cetera. And then who they sell it to on the other side is another. And it, it, is, it is a matter of, of who certifies what. Who has the authority to certify what? Like the certification process, like the organic certification process is something extremely expensive for, for poor communities. They don't have, and, and this is a, this is a problem that we, that we have everywhere. Like they don't have the money to pay for that. They don't have the money to pay for a five year transition at the very least to go to get that certification and and that basically that stamp that comes from the outside so we really need to to start thinking in in very different ways of how we are going to 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 do things and that basically means taking up responsibility for for our own life for what we eat and how we relate to the people who produce our food if we are not growing it ourselves and that involves time and energy but that's it like life food is 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 not a part of life food is a source of life like you can you can live without anything else except for water air and food so we need to be very conscious of that and yeah i mean i totally agree i think that like 
we need to we need to move beyond these ideas of, of organic certification or fair trade certification. That's not enough. And clearly that's not enough for the climate disaster that we have, like not hanging on our heads, but like living with us right now. And I'm sure that, again, it's, it's felt more in the communities that are more frontline living their life on the land, from the land. But that definitely would resonate, I'm sure, with um, the, well, the agricultural community in Ireland, whether they're a bit alternative or still more mainstream because all the you know organic certification is not possible for so many farmers even in these richer countries it's uh, it's very limiting um so we need to think beyond those like you say one thing that the sapatistas if anything although it's difficult to market their products they're they're trying it so it's something we can all um chip into i well i just wanted you to mention because just a couple of their other products that obviously getting it into the international market is quite difficult. But locally, they also obviously have connections with, well, not just within their communities, but with a couple of the external neighboring communities. So what, what kind of products do they also produce to sell more locally? Honey, I think. Uh, and yeah, honey-related products. That is also a big part of, of what they produce, not, not in all the different areas. We also need to remember that, I would say almost the rest of Mexico, there are different ecosystems uh, in, a, in a very close proximity. So the Zapatista territory, if such a thing exists, is... Um, encompassed in different ecosystems. So they do exchange products among the different ecosystems and, and, and the different things that like they can each produce. But also, I mean, some of those like rich uh, some cities like, uh, well, mainly San Cristobal de las Casas, which is like the one, one of the most important cities in the region. And in some cases, uh, Mexico City as well. But then again, that is mainly like non-perishable foods such as coffee and honey and some honey-related products like uh, medicines that they have been producing with um, having uh, honey as a basis. Other than that, uh, some vegetables sometimes reach San Cristobal de las Casas. But again, I think that like those... They are important, but like they are secondary. What I think that like the Zapatistas have been promoting, and I think that like that is extremely wise from their part, is, is self-consumption. They keep their good corn for themselves. Exactly. That is the basis <laughs> of, of, of food autonomy, which is basically like, again, a lesson for the rest of us, which are, I mean, the rest of the world is basically like, really like market-oriented, like, what can you produce in large in vast quantities that you can like sell to 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 other people but that is not the case and again i think that like this is this is a political decision up to a certain extent but i think that it's also it's also rooted in their in their culture i mean mayan people have always kept this way of living where where food would be basically what they grew and a bit of like hunting 
on the side as well, which is also kind of like important, and like some animals. And that, and that was basically like the basis of their life for 5,000 years, if not longer. Uh, and this is what ha is basically like changing and very rapidly, not only for, for the reasons that we have mentioned previously, but also climate change. I think it's important to, to keep that in mind because when we see the like migration flows from Central America to Mexico and then to the United States, uh, some of those migrants, I would say a big number of them, are basically like climate change refugees because, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, the level of urgency that we have in the world right now. So it's important to, to also keep that in mind and uh, remember that even though I have been basically like advo advocating in this interview for local and, and territorialized um, organizing and, and change, it is important to find ways of connecting like different struggles because we are in a in a mess basically and and we know that like big numbers of people will have to to migrate because living conditions are are no longer possible in in the areas where where they have lived and and this is also the case in in some places in Chiapas I would argue so hopefully the the zapatista communities have managed to reduce a little bit migration well for different reasons for many reasons but partly because they're they're focusing on trying to recover an agriculture that's more suited to their their areas perhaps i'm wondering like how because there's different areas and regions it's quite spread out the territories could you tell us a little bit about how maybe they managed to share a little bit of their agricultural knowledge or is it more kind of more in their locality through I think they have some promoters of agroecology yeah that's right I mean they have they have differences between like the different uh, self-government regions uh, in the Zapatista territory but they do have um, they call them agroecology uh, promoters I mean they have been extremely efficient in basically promoting uh, self-organizing or self-education. So they have uh, health promoters, they have education promoters, but they also have like agroecology promoters where they share knowledge. They invite people from the outside, like sometimes people with different kinds of like backgrounds and training to share um, their knowledge with them as well. Um, and they have ways of basically like um, distributing that knowledge in the different in the different communities. It is very important at this point to remember that most of this is done through their own means and resources. So this is also like a, a shift in paradigm compared to to how we understand. Let's call it like development or, or ways of teaching and doing, let's say. I have had the opportunity to, to get to know some of those agroecology promoters. Um, I have to say that like, not only they are very uh, knowledgeable, 
they are very generous with what they know and how they share that knowledge. They have been in constant training over the past, what, 30 years, 40 years. I think that they can, they can have really proper chat with agroecologists <laughs> trained in universities, let's say, because not only they have the knowledge, but they also have the practice. And the local practice. <laughs> exactly. Local circumstances change all the time. For me, they, they are like basically like people who have a very different set of skills, somehow interweaved in such a way that they can promote, let's say, tomato growing while teaching you a little bit about self-governance. <laughs> so Brilliant. I want to do that workshop. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, we should definitely all do politics in the garden. I agree. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to think about that one a bit more. That's that's a good description. And I will add to to this one more layer of complexity which is basically like they do all these living under war conditions because we are we cannot like forget the though there isn't like an open war that we read about or that we hear about in Chiapas partially because the war has extended to the rest of the territory of the of the Mexican territory but also i mean the the, the ways in which this war is operating are different and nevertheless, there is an ongoing war against the Zapatista communities and, and the Zapatistas to achieve all these when you have basically everything else against you. <laughs> it's just like admirable, I think. That's definitely a, a big layer of complexity that while most people in, in some privileged places don't have to think about if they're going to try less chemicals or organic and and that's one of the things I, I know you wanted to to try to connect to why they um why they're coming on their European tour uh this summer, especially with a pandemic which lots of people would say, God, can't they just put it off for another year? This is not a good time. Isn't it a bit well extra complicated and all that? But maybe it speaks for their motivation and the realities that they, they're actually facing every day. Basically, we have reached a point in which we really need to not only think uh, in alternatives, but start like producing like alternatives. And by that, we, I mean all of us. <laughs> the level of, of war and repression in, in Chiapas uh, is just like extremely worrying. There is like a growing number of people who have been forcibly like displaced in that state. Just this morning I was reading a chronicle in which they talked about people in different like areas in, in the highlands uh, who have been displaced for two or three years now. And they are basically like living in the middle of like nowhere and like they are constantly under attack by paramilitary groups. And the state has done nothing about that. Uh, I have heard like personal stories of people who have had to like flee 
their homes because they are basically like being attacked every day. They cannot go to their milpas. They cannot go to their coffee plantations. The level of trauma and stress is just sickening, I think. In the 90s, we managed, let's say, to organize a movement to, to try to stop the war in Chiapas. Right now in Mexico, it's so even difficult to, to ask the question how to stop the war. Which war? Where? Like, it's, it's everywhere. And I think that, like, if we look at the state of the world, that is increasingly the case. And, I mean, I don't want to be, like, pessimistic, but, like, I don't think that things are going to improve uh, in the following years. Even if we manage to control this pandemic, which is a big if, the economic recession is impending. And that is just going to create even more violence. I think that we really need to organize. Um, we need to be smart about it. We need to be compassionate. And we need to be generous. And I think that the Zapatistas are those three things. <laughs> so I think that like they are an example of hope. And I think that this is basically what we what we need in Europe, but also in the rest of Latin America, in the rest of the world mainly. And I'm also, I mean, I know that this is not the topic, but I'm also profoundly moved by what's happening in Colombia right now. And we really need to, to pay attention to, to these examples of, of resistance, of organizing in spite of everything, even when you have everything against you. They're setting examples. They're setting examples. And, and we shouldn't like waste our time to see those examples and to do what we have to do. Well, thank you. I think, I think you, uh, you beautifully brought me into the, the last question, which was the lessons, which I think you've, you've pinpointed very well in terms of we, we don't have time to waste. Even with all the odds against them, they're, they're doing it regardless we sitting here with so much privilege in many different ways should be using it. I think I think it's 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 important to or for me at least to to think that it's important to preserve life always. And as I say, like our struggle is for life. <laughs> but I would add it's also important to have lives that are worth living. And that basically means dignified lives. When I see, when I see the, the images and the news of, of migrants arriving in, in Europe, not being Ireland the first point of contact, but let, let's say Spain, the coasts of Spain, I think that we need to remember that, that like people are migrating because they are looking for a dignified way of living. A life worth living. So I think that we also need to ask ourselves that, like, are our lives, like, worth living? And, and how are we organizing? And how, what are we going to do so that, like, we can also ensure that, like, other human beings and non-human beings have lives worth living? Well, thank you, Rita, for sharing your personal experience on such an important topic. We all have a connection with food, of course, 
but we probably don't spend much time thinking about where it comes from and whose hands it passed through. Growing some of our own food might be an option for a few of us, but I feel it's in everyone's power to support worthy food producers everywhere trying to make a difference, especially those who openly oppose capitalism. So get yourself some Zapatista coffee when you can. Un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find a list of related links and resources in our show notes for this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us at Galway Feminist Collective on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also via our email address, Collective at gmail.com. 